Well, here we are in our second last week of God's Big Picture. This is week eight. There's only one more week to go till we've covered all nine lessons on how God's kingdom works and how it all fits together, both in the past, the present, and next week, the future. Now, remember that we have this pattern of God's kingdom. I've said it a few times already. We've got God's people in God's place, under God's rule and his blessing. And we've seen that traced throughout scripture in various different times, right from the Garden of Eden, the beginning of the world, right through the history of God's people, the people of Israel. And we're waiting for God to establish his kingdom in the present with Jesus. And last week we saw that's what happened that God did, him, God did come himself to be the king of his people. Uh, God came to forgive his people's sin. Uh, God came to be a ruler who would be better and more complete than any human ruler. And we saw that Jesus starts this kingdom. He initiates, he inaugurates God's kingdom. Uh, but we see also that Jesus speaks of God's kingdom in future terms some of the time. He says that there are things that are not yet a part of God's kingdom, but they will be in the age to come. He often speaks of things that will occur in the future. So at this point in time, we're sort of living between the ages. Uh, in a sense, what we've got is living in God's kingdom now, but waiting for something to occur later on. So as you can see that after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God pours out his Holy Spirit on all those disciples who are present and they start to proclaim, to teach, to tell out the good news of Jesus. And friends, that's the same period of history that we live in today. It is our job at the present to proclaim God's kingdom. Uh, we don't establish God's kingdom. Uh, we're not the ones who can be God's rulers here on earth. No, no, that's something that Jesus did already. We can't forgive our own sins. No, Jesus has done that already. We can't live under God's rule and blessing without that. But now that we are under God's rule and blessing as his people, we proclaim his kingdom. Now, if the kingdom is going to be proclaimed around the world, that makes us the proclaimers, like these guys. No, not the Scottish band from the 80s. Uh, although it's not a bad analogy, they were willing to walk 500 miles or even 500 more. Maybe we would walk that far to help people hear about Jesus. I have to confess, I was, had to stop and listen to the song as I was preparing the sermon. It's pretty catchy. But... I digress. The point is that as they're singing their song, one of the lines in it is, you know, they'll say that I'd walk 500 miles just to be the man who would do something, yeah, whatever. He would go out or he'd come home or he'd whatever. One of the things that he says, though, is that, uh, and if I have a, yeah, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man that's havering to you. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Didn't know what that verb was. But I did some Googling. I Googled it and I found out that to haver is some sort of like uh, rambling on foolishly talking in a way that's just nonsense or gibberish and I think sadly that's what some people do when they're proclaiming God's kingdom it's just kind of gibberish that's hard to understand and it doesn't make much sense so I don't want us to be the people who are havering about God's kingdom it's not a word I'm going to use very often but there you go I've learned something new instead today we're going to see 
about how we proclaim God's kingdom. And we're going to see why we should proclaim God's kingdom and what we should be saying when we do it. So that's what we're going to find out today from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Firstly then, we're going to see how we proclaim God's kingdom. Uh, We're going to see that throughout this book, um, Paul's making a consistent argument about his own qualifications as an apostle. And we're starting kind of here in chapter 4, midway through his argument, which is certainly drawing on ideas in the previous chapter, chapter 3. Paul makes a case that he's speaking of the Jews who don't understand God's message, and it's almost like God has veiled them. He's put some sort of a cloth in front of their faces so that they can't see Jesus. Uh, They reject this message of Jesus, and it's almost as if they're unable to see it until the Spirit enlightens them, uh, illuminates them so that they can understand who Jesus is and why he's so important. However, Paul also says, by God's grace, all who believe the message have this veil removed by the Holy Spirit and then are transformed to be more and more like Jesus. Now, that's the background to what Paul says here in chapter 4. Therefore, uh, for this reason, Paul says, we have this ministry. You might wonder what ministry it is. Well, the ministry of telling others about Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom that has come. Why? So that the Spirit can be at work and remove the veil from people so that they can see clearly who Jesus is. And so for this reason... We, like Paul, need to proclaim the kingdom and we need to do it in a way so that we don't get discouraged, just as Paul says. Why? We're going to do it boldly, not giving up, not being discouraged, because we know that God's Spirit is at work as we do it. It's not up to you and I. It's not up to our skill and our convincing rhetoric. It's up to God. So we can be bold knowing that even if... Our gospel presentation may not be the best. Maybe we're a little confused at points or maybe the other person still doesn't quite get it. Uh, We don't give up. We don't get discouraged because we know it's as if they've got this veil covering their faces and it's up to God's Holy Spirit to take that away. Uh, Knowing that it's not up to us, we don't get cowardly and say, oh, woe is me, I'm not very good at telling people about Jesus. In fact, no, it's the opposite. We should be bold. Uh, We should proclaim confidently, knowing that God will be at work by his Spirit to illuminate whoever it is who hears our message. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to do a bad job of it or that it doesn't matter what we say. It does. It matters how we present the gospel. We want to make it clear. We're going to proclaim in a way that is not just confident but gibberish. We're going to proclaim confidently and clearly. Uh, We want people to understand what it is that we're saying. We want them to see Jesus as clearly as they can. And so this is what Paul says here in verse 2. He has spurned shameful, deceptive, disgraceful, underhanded ways as he goes about his ministry. He's not using cunning or manipulation. He doesn't tamper with God's word. Rather, what he says is by the open statement of the truth, We present ourselves to everyone's conscience in God's sight. We do our part. God does his part. And that's it. As we clearly and confidently proclaim God's kingdom, 
that's our job. It's not underhanded, it's not deceptive, it's clear, it's simple, and it's got to be a, a kind of proclamation, a kind of explanation that people will understand. And then in verses 3 and 4 of our message, even though sometimes as we tell people about Jesus, they don't get it, that's not impossible for God to overcome. Uh, we understand that as we do our part, God does his. And the only reason that people don't respond to our proclamation is that their faces are veiled in a sense. It's, there's a sense where sin doesn't just affect the way that we act, Sin is so totally and utterly comprehensive that it affects our minds. Sin has blinded the minds of those who are not yet Christians. And friends, even the Apostle Paul and you and I were in that boat once upon a time. And Paul's not saying anything new here either, if you think about it. I remember Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, here in Matthew 13, as the sower goes to sow the word, what happens? Some of the seed falls on the path and the birds instantly gobble it up. It never takes root. And Jesus explains that this is Satan taking it away before it even has a chance to take root. That the gospel will go out and be spread widely, but it won't take root everywhere. It won't be accepted. Instead, Satan will snatch it away for some and they're unable to hear the gospel. Uh, Paul elsewhere calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. He's kind of the one currently ruling our world, affecting the way that we think and speak and act. There's nothing new in what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians, that even though we might proclaim confidently and clearly, not everyone is going to get it. Why? Because sin affects their minds and Satan is at work in this world. And so it's not a matter of intellect we don't want to look down on people who hear the gospel and don't respond. We don't say, oh, they're stupid people, they don't understand. We're supposed to say to ourselves, no, they're blind. They've got a problem. They are unable to see. And that's not something that you and I can directly fix ourselves. That is the work of God's Spirit. Now just imagine then that uh, if you had perfect eyesight, and you were a brilliant bird spotter. You're a real twitcher. You love getting out there, watching all the birds around the place. But if I took you to the forest and I dumped you there in the middle of the night, pitch black, no moon, you had no source of light whatsoever, and I said, well, how many birds can you see? And you say, well, I couldn't see any. I'd say, well, I thought you were an expert. You told me that you know all these things about birds and you're great at spotting them, and you'd say, but I can't see. I literally have no way to know what those birds are or see them without some illumination. And so, friends, that's what God's Spirit does. As we confidently and clearly proclaim the gospel to people, it's as if God's Spirit works in them to take away that veil. It's like God turns the lights on so they can see. So as we are proclaiming the gospel to people, not everyone will respond, but it's not up to us to make them. And it's not because they're stupid, it's because they're blind. And it's God who can fix that. So it's not ourselves that we proclaim either. It is God's kingdom, and God is the one who has established his kingdom, and God is the one who continues to grow his kingdom, but for some reason, he uses us. I think it's 
amazing testimony to God's power that he uses weak and feeble people like you and I and like the Apostle Paul to grow his kingdom. It's a testimony to God at work, his power, not our own. And so this brings us to what we proclaim. Uh, Knowing how we proclaim is good, but that's not all. We've got to know what we're going to tell other people. Have a look here in verses 5 and 6. Paul says his approach to proclaiming is this. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Who is it that we proclaim? It's Jesus. Why? Because it's Jesus who has established God's kingdom in the present. It's Jesus who has done all the work of saving us, and it's Jesus who will finish that work when he comes back. So it's the same kind of thing, though, that Paul says here in elsewhere and in some of his other letters. Um, Paul says very similar in Colossians 1.15. Um, you can see here that it's, it's not that Jesus is a, a nice guy or just a prophet or some sort of wise teacher. In fact, what Paul says in a few different places is that he is the exact image of God. And that's another good reason why we proclaim Jesus. He is God. He is the embodiment of God himself. And that's what we saw last week. Uh, It wasn't good enough to have just a human king who fails and grows old and frail and subject to sin. No, God takes on human form to come to earth to save his people from their sins and to give them his rule and his blessing. And so as we proclaim, it's not the cult of me or you or anyone else, it's Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus and you want people to follow Jesus, then it's got to be about him, doesn't it? Uh, We want to be hanging on his every word, learning from him, helping others to do the same. It's not our kingdom we're building. It's not up to us, it's Jesus. It's certainly not up to me. I mean, just look at me. Come on. What am I going to do? What, bully someone into submission? It's not going to happen, I can tell you. All right? Not that we should do that even if we could. All right. It's not up to us, it's up to God. And so we proclaim him. We say Jesus is the Lord of our life. What we're doing is we're trying to help people connect with him. Uh, One of the ways that we're thinking of how our church functions is sort of through these four words. Uh, We want to connect with people, help them to grow, to be more like Jesus, to serve him with their lives, and go out into the world and tell others about him as well. And that's what we might call discipleship pathway for church. That's the goal of the Christian life, to connect with God and one another, grow in faith, serve him, and go out to tell others. That's what we're looking at a little more throughout Term 3 and 4. But that seems to be what Paul has in mind here. It's all about Jesus. We're proclaiming him. And in verse 6, the plan of God is to make his kingdom known by shining a light in other people's hearts. Again, it's kind of this work of the Spirit illuminating people's hearts, helping them to understand, helping them to have new affections, 
loving things that maybe they never loved before, appreciating things about Jesus that maybe they never appreciated before. So we're going to proclaim Jesus as the what, and we're going to do that confidently, and we're going to do it clearly. But why? Why do we want to do that in the first place? Well, we're going to see now why we proclaim Jesus confidently and clearly. From verses 7 to 15, uh, we've already seen a little bit of this because we're saying it's not about us, it's about God. And Paul fleshes this idea out in verses 7 to 15. Well, literally, he fleshes it out. He's talking about his own flesh and blood. He says that his body, he himself, is like a jar of clay. Now, if you know anything about ancient pottery, there is jars that were made for very special purposes that would be kept specially for special occasions. And Paul is not talking about one of them. He's talking about the old sort of disposable takeaway Chinese plastic container. We're not talking about grandma's fine china here. In our day and age, that's the kind of equivalent. Paul is not saying, look, I'm an important, special, precious object. He's saying, look, I'm just disposable. I'm the sort of stuff that you use once and throw away. So the idea is that life is something that is not forever in the way it is today, Physical injuries and illnesses and sicknesses and old age is going to come for us all at some way, somehow. No one gets out of here alive, not church, that's fine, but (laughs) life in general. Nobody is going to live forever in this world in this way. And so we have to acknowledge our weaknesses. Paul goes to great lengths in the following verses to explain that. He says that he and his fellow apostles and other ministries suffer greatly. Uh, We've got persecution. He says that they're persecuted, they're afflicted, they're perplexed, they're cast down. None of this is good, but this is what he's saying is that life can be pretty hard, especially when you want to follow Jesus. Now, it's not a series of events that occur randomly either. What Paul says in the original language, the way he explains it, is that these things are happening simultaneously. They're all happening all at once, and they're all happening all at once, all the time. Why would anyone want to sign up to follow Jesus when that's what it's about? Well, the reason is that despite the hardship that Paul faces, he says that that's only half the story. Although he faces hardship, he is afflicted. He says he's not crushed. Though he's perplexed, he's not despairing, and so on. He always carries around the death of Jesus in his body. Why? So that the life of Jesus might be manifest. You see, Paul's role in an apostle is to kind of be like Christ. And Paul literally goes through very similar experiences of life and suffering and death, a bit like Jesus did. Why? So that others can follow suit. And so Paul is saying, I'm weak and I'm fragile and I'm disposable, but I have treasure inside. Though I'm a jar of clay, the treasure I have inside is the good news of Jesus. It's the faith in Christ that ensures that despite the hardships of this life, That's not all there is. Faith in Christ will lead us to be Christ-like, and often that does mean suffering, but though we suffer, what happens after? There's eternal life, forgiveness of sins with God forever 
in perfect harmony and relationship. So as Paul proclaims the gospel as he goes around the place, he's not proclaiming himself, he just thinks he's a clay jar. What he wants is to share the treasure that he has inside. Now, as we see in our next slide, Paul connects faith with speaking. Uh, There's an often misquoted and misattributed quote. It goes like this, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. By St. Francis of Assisi. And I think almost none of that is right. St. Francis of Assisi didn't say that, almost guarantee he didn't. In fact, the second half of that's probably not right at all. Preach the gospel at all times, I've scribbled a bit of it out. Use words, right? It's not from St. Francis, it's from the Bible, right? Preach the gospel at all times, use words. So that's what I would change that to. Now, one of those things is that Paul's connecting faith with speaking in verse 13. Uh, Paul says that we believed, therefore we speak. Uh, We believe in Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the one who will forgive us from our sins, bring us to God, give us eternal life. That is why he speaks, because he knows how incredibly valuable that is. And that's the treasure that he has, though he is just a jar of clay, and as we are too. It's not up to us. It's the message that we have that's the treasure. So Paul is not saying just kind of be nice to people and demonstrate Christ-likeness. He says, no, no, we believe in Jesus, therefore what do we do? We speak. Use words. Another hilarious thing I once saw was from a Louis Theroux documentary where he meets this guy in Texas. No offense to any Texans out there. But there was a a fantastic scene where he meets this guy who's got this bumper sticker Christian ministry. And what he does is he he sticks these bumper stickers on his car and other people's cars and he just drives around the city of Dallas just witnessing. And Louis Theroux asks him, so what are you hoping to achieve with all this? And he says, oh, it's great. You just witness by driving around. You don't have to say a word. And I think that's like part of me appreciates the the humility and, and the kind of simple approach to ministry this guy had. But at the same time, I don't think it was very effective. It's It's not enough to just kind of drive around the place with a bumper sticker on. What Paul says is that he believed, therefore, we speak. The whole Christian life revolves around Jesus, and so we don't want to keep that quiet. If we think that Jesus is the best thing ever, which he is, then if he's the treasure that we have inside, how could we not want to share the treasure with others? So forget St. Francis of Assisi quote. It wasn't his anyway. Forget bumper stickers. I don't think they're very effective. But what Paul has us do is to proclaim And if we're proclaiming, by definition, we have to be using words. We have to be speaking. And so as we go about our lives, we too will proclaim Christ. Not just in deed, but with words. We are not the treasure. We are the jar of clay, but we have a treasure inside. And that's our message. And when we tell someone about Jesus, what we're doing is we're offering them something more valuable than gold. Uh, This treasure that we have should be something we want to share, something that we think is incredibly valuable and we want to pass on to others. So friends, we're now in the time of the proclaimed kingdom, 
Jesus has come for the first time. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and given to all of us who believe. And so we tell others about him. And we do that until he returns. And so as we do it, we do it confidently and clearly and make it all about Jesus. Friends, that is our mission in life for now. Next week, we'll see what happens in our final session, our final teaching on God's big picture. So stay tuned to see where it's all heading in the future, how Jesus will finally, once and for all, establish his kingdom perfectly. But until then, let's keep proclaiming Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we see uh, the value that Jesus has, the value that we have as well. Though we are precious in your sight, Lord, help us not to overestimate our abilities. Instead, Lord, help us to turn humbly to you in faith, acknowledging our own sin and faults and failings and weakness. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul, who, uh, though a wonderful example to us all and an apostle, still considered himself to be just a jar of clay. Help us, Lord, to keep proclaiming you confidently and clearly, knowing that relationship with God is by far the greatest treasure that anyone could ever have. So let's continue to do that, Lord. We pray that you'll strengthen us to that task. Amen. <laughs>